0: The current system of measurement units used here in Asia has three standard units, the meter, the kilogram, and the second. These three units form the MKS system or the metric system. A meter is a unit of length currently defined as the distance that light travels in one over 299,792,458 of a second. A kilogram is a unit of mass, and is defined based on a prototype platinum-iridium cylinder with diameter and height both equal to 39 millimeters, kept in a lock vault in Paris. And a second is a unit of time, and is defined as 9,192,631,770 oscillations of a cesium-133 atom. The exact precision involved in these measurements so that there will be no deviations in these units of measurements upon which almost everything scientific is dependent upon. In fact, in almost all disciplines, there is a guide, a reference which prevents deviations. In chemistry, chemists refer back to the periodic table. An accountant refers back to the tax code and the tax tables. A lawyer refers to his legal books. A historian refers to establish historical timelines, and so on. So also in spiritual matters of life, we need a guide or a reference to make sure we're on the right track and have not deviated too far from what is right in God's eyes. But is there such a guide? Is there something we can refer to or reference to help us know what are the right things we are to do or the wrong things we are to avoid? Does this guide help us navigate life and find purpose and direction? Does it tell us how to interact with people, specifically people who are difficult to love and deal with? But most important, does this guide point to how we find salvation so that we can have eternal life? There is such a guide, and it's the Bible, the Word of God. But sadly, the culture is such that the world thinks only fools believe in the Bible. Only the uneducated believe in the Bible. Only those who do not think for themselves or are rational believe in the Bible. My friends, have we bought into these mistaken assumptions? Let's study how we are to view the Scriptures as a guide for life to encourage us to love and treasure the Bible as we continue our sermon series, Voyager, looking at the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 17 as we study verses 1 to 15. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. I read now verses 1 and 2. Now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures." The Bible tells us Paul, Silas, and their traveling group made their way to Thessalonica. And as was their practice for evangelism, they first went to the local Jewish synagogue because that was where people who were seeking the truth could be found. What did they do? The Bible tells us for three weeks they reasoned with them from the Scriptures. It is clear. They used God's Word to discuss with them spiritual things. Why? Because at the end of the day, Philosophy, psychology, human logic and reasoning and other ways to argue about spiritual things do not hold the same authoritative value as that of the Scriptures. Paul and Silas recognize the divine authority that came from the Scriptures because the words were from God Himself. That's why there's nothing wrong with saying the Bible teaches this or the Bible says this because you are pointing to the definitive authority of God. If they don't agree with or are upset with what the Bible teaches, let them be angry with God and His Word. You can tell them, don't be angry with me. This is what the Bible says. That's why Paul reasoned from the Scriptures. It wasn't because Paul was an intellectual powerhouse and eloquent that would convince them and rule the day. It was because the Scriptures carried truth and authority from God Himself, and that would convince and convict people. And this is our first biblical principle, biblical principle number one. The Bible is God's authoritative word and the only guide for a fulfilled life. The Bible is God's authoritative word and the only guide for a fulfilled life. My friends, I often think we forget that the Bible isn't just a book of suggested ways to live your life. It is God's commands for how we are to live and how he's defined what is right and wrong is not up for debate. It is clear, authoritative, and unchanging. And yet this generation, young and old, likes to treat God's authoritative word as suggestions and his rules as being up for debate. For example, my eldest son Andrew, who is in senior high school, will go out with his friends, and we allow him because he is responsible. But we tell him he has to come home by 10.30 p.m., but sometimes he comes home at 11.30 p.m. with a lot of reasons for why he's late. Cindy and I will say to him, what part of 10.30 p.m. do you not understand? Could you not tell your friends, I need to be home by 10.30 p.m., so I need to leave earlier? But instead of thinking, my friends will understand if I have to leave earlier because this is the rule my parents set forth, the thinking becomes, oh, my parents will understand if I'm late because I haven't hung out with my friends due to three years of the pandemic. Of course, we get upset at him. It is the same way with God and his word. Instead of the world having to understand that as a child of God, as a Christ follower, I have to live out the truths of Scripture, it is, oh, my God will understand if I don't always follow the Bible, because I want the world to like me and then we can't figure out why God is angry or disciplines us, and our throwaway line is, God, you don't understand. My friends, you and I need something authoritative to serve as a guide, something that doesn't change, whose guidance is clear, so that there is no ambiguity as to what we are to do. What is most frustrating in life is when there is no clear direction or no clear answers. If you're looking for guidance, or looking into a guidebook for answers. You don't want a lot of options. You want one answer. And with God's authoritative Word, it serves as a great guide because He gives us clear-cut guidance and answers. And if the Bible doesn't have guiding principles for a specific situation, as long as we're not in conflict with any scriptural principles, then we have the freedom to choose whatever we want to do, knowing that whatever we choose God will be okay with it. This is very liberating. Let me ask you this. Without the Bible, what authoritative reference is there for how you and I are to live? We could ask those who are older and more experienced than us in life, and the common Asian answer would go something like this. You should study hard. Why? So that you can get a good job. Why? So that you can make lots of money. Why? So that you can retire well. Why? So that you can enjoy life with all that you've worked hard for. But what if I find no pleasure in material things? Well, you can give it back to the community. Why? So that you can feel good about yourself. But what if I die early and don't have an opportunity to do any of this? Usually, there is no answer. Also, they would add, you should marry the right person. Why is that important? So that you will be happy and can have children Why is having children important so that they will take care of you when you're older? But what if they don't? Then you tell them they can't have your money. But what if I have no children or have a debilitating disease and die before I can enjoy family life? Again, usually, there is no answer. You see, the world's answers for how we should live our lives cannot really satisfy because the ending is all the same. You and I will die. And if this matter isn't definitively answered or addressed, which it is in the Bible, then there is no fulfillment and peace in life. That's why the writer of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, at the end of his life, looking back, tells us that all of life is meaningless. Materialism and comfortability in life don't bring with it joy and happiness. The authoritative guide of God's Word tells us that a life lived apart from God is utterly meaningless, so we will be warned. So it goes without saying that if the Bible is God's authoritative Word, useful as a guide to a fulfilled life, then you and I have to know it and live it out. It would be the height of hypocrisy to claim that God's Word is truth and my guide to life, but don't even take the time to read it to know it, and to live it out. Josh McDowell is a person who has greatly influenced my life. He shares, When I was a teenager, I wanted to be happy. I wanted my life to have meaning. I became hounded by three basic questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? I started searching for answers. Where I was brought up, everyone seemed to be into religion. So I thought I might find my answers in being religious, I got into church 150 percent. I went every time the doors opened, morning, afternoon, or evening. But I must have picked the wrong church because I felt worse inside it than I did outside. From my upbringing on a farm in Michigan, I inherited a rural practicality that says when something doesn't work, get rid of it. So I chucked religion. Then I thought that education might have the answers to my questions. So I enrolled in a university. Faculty members and my fellow students had just as many problems, frustrations, and unanswered questions as I did. Education, I decided, was not the answer. So I began to think maybe I could find happiness and meaning in prestige, and the thrill of prestige wore off like everything else I had tried. I endured Monday through Friday, living only for the parting nights of the weekend. Then, on Monday, the meaningless cycle would begin all over again. I didn't let on that my life was meaningless. I was too proud for that. Everyone thought I was the happiest man on the university campus. They never suspected that my happiness was a sham. It depended on my circumstances. If things were going great for me, I felt great. When things were going lousy, I felt lousy. I just didn't let it show. About that time, I noticed a small group of people, eight students and two faculty members, who seemed different from the others. They seemed to know who they were and where they were going, and they had convictions. It is refreshing to find people with convictions, and I like to be around them. I admire people who believe in something and take a stand for it, even if I don't agree with their beliefs. It was clear to me that these people had something I didn't have. They were disgustingly happy, and their happiness didn't ride up and down with the circumstances of university life. It was constant. They appeared to possess an inner source of joy, and I wondered where it came from. It was clear to me that these people had something I didn't have. A couple of weeks later, I sat around a table in the student union talking with some of the members of this group. The conversation turned to the topic of God. I was pretty skeptical and insecure about the topic, so I put on a big front. I leaned back in my chair, acting like I couldn't care less. Christianity, ha, I blustered. That's for unthinking weaklings, not for intellectuals. Of course, under all the bluster, I really wanted what these people had, but my pride didn't want them to know the aching urgency of my need. The subject bothered me but I couldn't let go of it. So I turned to one of the students and said, "'Tell me, why are you so different "'from all the other students and faculty on this campus? "'What changed your life?' "'Without hesitation or embarrassment, "'she looked me straight in the eye, "'deadly serious and uttered two words "'I never expected to hear "'in an intellectual discussion on a university campus. "'Jesus Christ.' "'Jesus Christ,' I snapped. "'I'm fed up with religion.' I'm fed up with church. I'm fed up with the Bible." Immediately, she shot back. I didn't say religion. I said Jesus Christ. She pointed out something I had never known. Christianity is not a religion. Religion is humans trying to work their way to God through good works. Christianity is God coming to men and women through Jesus Christ. Then my new friends issued a challenge I couldn't believe they challenged me to make rigorous intellectual examinations of the claims of Jesus Christ, that He is God's Son, that He inhabited a human body and lived among real men and women, that He died on the cross for the sins of humanity, that He was buried and was resurrected three days later, and that He is still alive and can change a person's life even today. I accepted my friend's challenge, mostly out of spite and to prove them wrong. I was convinced The Christian story would not stand up against evidence. I was a pre-law student, and I knew something about evidence. I decided to start with the Bible. I was sure that if I could uncover indisputable evidence that the Bible is an unreliable record, the whole of Christianity would crumble. I took the challenge seriously. I spent months in research. I even dropped out of school for a time to study in the historically rich libraries of Europe, and I found evidence evidence in abundance, evidence I could hardly believe with my own eyes. Finally, I could only come to one conclusion. If I were to remain intellectually honest, I had to admit that the Old and New Testament documents were some of the most reliable writings in all of antiquity. And if they were reliable, what about this man Jesus, whom I dismissed as a mere carpenter? I had to admit that Jesus Christ was more than a carpenter, He was all he claimed to be. Not only did my research turn me around intellectually, it also answered the three questions that started me on my quest for happiness and meaning. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? My friends, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Burdick, was the culmination of his research that began as a way to disprove the Bible. And Josh's book greatly helped me In my own intellectual struggles to find proof of the truth of christianity and the bible now back to the story paul and silas knew the scriptures well that it was authoritative that is why they were able to reason with the people for three weekends if they didn't know the scriptures 15 minutes would have been enough to cover all they knew look at verses 3 and 4 explaining and demonstrating that the christ had to suffer And rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. What specifically in the scriptures did Paul and Silas talk to the Thessalonians about? Verse 3 tells us it was about the Savior who had to die, but conquered death when he rose from the dead and that the Savior of the world is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, we have to remember that these people most likely didn't live in Palestine during the earthly ministry of Jesus and therefore wouldn't have known him. Paul and Silas would have to argue through his teachings, his claims, and his miracles whom Jesus claimed to be, the Son of God, God himself, the promised Messiah or Savior. In fact, they would have not been in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified on the cross and appeared to hundreds after his resurrection. So again, Paul and Silas would have to prove that not only was it necessary for the Savior to die for us and rise again, but that this Jesus actually did it. So let me ask you would you be able to do as Paul and Silas did? Would you be able to have an intelligent discussion for why the Savior you believe in had to die and rise again? And how Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, is that Savior? If each one of you can't, then maybe you don't have to wonder why the people around you are not so inclined to also place their trust in Jesus. Because you yourself don't even know what you believe well enough to explain it to others. So how do you expect them to want to believe. It's sad that you can easily tell me five things about each of the singers in BTS or Blackpink, or all the ships and vehicles used in Star Wars, and can even argue with Passion, which is the better Disney Plus show, Andor, Mandalorian or Obi-Wan. But for that which deals with your eternal life and salvation, you can't tell me why the Savior had to die and rise again and that the only possible Savior is Jesus Christ. No wonder people will naturally question your true beliefs. Paul and Silas spoke with such confidence and knowledge that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us in verse 4, many of them were persuaded and saw the truth of Jesus as a true Savior and placed their trust in Him. And this is our second biblical principle. Biblical principle number 2. The Bible's central message is God's redemption plan to the Savior, Jesus. The Bible's central message is God's redemption plan to the Savior, Jesus. Now, why is this principle important? It's important because when we understand what the Bible is all about, we don't get drawn into useless debates or use the Bible to answer questions it was not intended to answer. The Bible is not a science book, although what it says about science is true. true. The Bible is not a history book, even though what it says about history is fully accurate. The Bible is not a book of literature, although it contains some of the finest examples of poetry, didactic, narrative, and apocalyptical literary genres. At its core, the Bible is a story of man's fall into sin and God's redemptive plan to save mankind from sin and to give them eternal life through the Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible is all about, and it is full of stories of men and women who have messed up terribly in life with no hope, only for God to save them, restore them, and redeem them for His glory and purpose. It is a book that tells people that salvation is a free gift from God, and that there is no way for us to save ourselves, even through our good works. My friends, let's remember the central message and focus of the Bible. Amy Lee always assumed rich people were more likely to go to heaven. She thought that a rich person had the opportunity to do more good works and therefore had a greater chance of getting through those, quote-unquote, pearly gates. Attending a Christian high school in South Korea, Amy naturally surrounded herself with Christians. Still, Amy did not fully comprehend that it was not by her good works, but by the gift of grace through faith in Jesus alone that she could inherit eternal life in the kingdom of God. I always thought that heaven and Jesus were not directly related, Amy said. I thought the only way to get to heaven was if I acted kindly towards others. After traveling to America to further her education at the University of Texas, Amy got connected with Crew, a Christian organization's international student outreach. There, she met Megan Goff, a staff member and Febi Rudolph, an intern for a weekly Bible study. Every week, she would ask some really profound questions about things and was just really insightful about what the Bible was saying, Megan says. I could tell it was really moving in her heart. Sitting outside Starbucks, reading the Bible had become a weekly routine for Amy. However, one Thursday was different. Amid the congestion and commotion on campus, Amy sat motionless, shocked by something she had just read. In Mark chapter 10, verse 25, Amy read, that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. For the very first time, she realized that nothing she ever did would be good enough to get her into heaven. Sitting across the table, Phoebe assured Amy that it is by grace we are saved, not by good works. There at Starbucks, Amy prayed and received Christ. At that moment, I felt like I was free, Amy said. Believing in Jesus and having that access to eternity really freed all of my concerns and worries. Even though I still worry a lot about my life and my future as a whole, I know that God will be leading me to a place where I should be, where He wants me to be. My friends, my friends, the Bible's central message is God's redemption plan to the Savior, Jesus. I read now verses 5 to 9. But the Jews were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The Bible tells us that those in the synagogue who were not persuaded by the truth of the Bible and the reasoned arguments of Paul and Silas became envious. Now, the question you and I should be asking is, why are they envious? What is there to be envious about? If you are arguing with someone over something, and you have a valid difference of opinion, then the normal reaction is not envy. An envious reaction is only for those who, when they lose an argument on valid reasons, have their pride hurt and look for other ways to justify their flawed position. It's okay to debate and walk away agreeing to disagree, but it shows a lot about one's character and even their position when instead of simply walking away, they get angry, envious, and do things to the opposing side. Verse 5 tells us that those who were not persuaded by Paul and Silas got unsavory people from the Roman forum or marketplace to form a mob and stir up the city against Paul and Silas. They thought that Paul and Silas were staying at the house of the believer Jason, so they went to Jason's house only to find out that Paul and Silas were not there. So instead, they dragged Jason and some fellow believers to the local authorities. They accused Jason of harboring Paul and Silas and falsely saying that they were teaching that there was another king named Jesus, which is sedition against Caesar. This naturally riled up the crowds and the local leaders. They made Jason and the fellow Christians in the city pay a monetary bond to guarantee that Paul and Silas would no longer make trouble and leave Thessalonica, which they did and were released. But I want you to focus on verse 6 and what these men said about the message from God's Word, which Paul and Silas taught. They said it was a message that turned the world upside down. They use it as a criticism, but I think it's one of the greatest compliments you can say about the message of the Scriptures. The Bible is revolutionary. It is supposed to be unsettling. It is a message that calls for action and requires life change. You see, so many people try to shoehorn Christianity into the world, the culture, and the lives they live in, and it should be no surprise that it does not work and will not work, because the message of the gospel will offend. It flies into the face of humanism and confronts man's ego and self-assurance, and it says you can't do it by yourself. You can't save yourself. The Bible calls us to rely fully on someone else, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it calls for life change. My friends, Christ followers are supposed to be different. Christ followers are supposed to be different. You see, the third biblical principle is this, biblical principle number three. The revolutionary message of the Bible should bring about life change. The revolutionary message of the Bible should bring about life change. My friends, is your life any different from before you knew Christ to after you knew Him? Because if not, then maybe you are not living according to how the Scriptures tell us we are to live. If you are searching the Bible to justify the sinful ways you live or to look for loopholes in God's clear directives, then not only are you misusing the Bible, you won't accept what the Bible teaches if it is opposed to your current way of sinful, worldly living. Again, I've said it many times, the Bible calls us to change, to become more Christ-like, not to make us superficially feel better. It's not a book for how to become more materially wealthy. It shows us how to find true satisfaction and joy by walking the ways of Christ. In his senior year of high school, Casey Cation crafted a tulip out of wire and felt. It took hours. He tied it to a card and carefully sorted Skittles, just the orange and red ones, her favorites, for one of the most popular girls at school. Then he slipped them into a bag and attached them to his gift. The next day was Valentine's Day. Hopes up, he courageously gave it to her. Later, in her classroom, he found his Skittles in the trash, Curious. He looked further. Casey had already had a rough childhood. His father left when he was four years old and he was sexually abused by a cousin. In a playground, as other kids were playing, Casey would play by himself, wandering around, playing with a stick, pretending to be a wizard. While everyone else seemed to be happily connecting, Casey felt odd, different. This led to intense bullying in middle school. One boy would regularly punch him in the face, Every single day, Casey made it his goal to avoid him. It didn't always work. And one day, the boy threw him down a set of stairs. I would try to talk to people and make friends, says Casey. But they would just laugh at me and make fun of me. They'd say stuff like, You're weird. You're a freak. You're gross. Rejected for so long and so harshly, Casey felt like an animal. Anything he was good at, he jettisoned so as not to draw attention. He was a fast runner, but he didn't try it for track. Church was no better. Casey learned that if you're rich, that's because God loves you and is blessing you. If you're poor, well, you're like Casey. The pastor refused to let his own son play with Casey and his brother Kyle. The message was clear. They were trash. As Casey began high school, he began hearing whispers. If the light rejects you, come to the darkness. A gifted writer Casey's journal grew disturbing and dark. A murderous hunger arose within as he wrote down horrible fantasies. With no one to tell him he was lovable, Casey sought acceptance in the darkness. He began talking with demons. By Casey's senior year of high school, he was in a bad place. Casey describes what he found on Valentine's Day. I saw the card and the flower, and somehow she'd ripped the flower in two and turned part of it into a dagger, which actually took a lot of effort. She stabbed it through the middle of the card and wrote, Die, freak, on the card. Waking up at 2 or 3 a.m., he went to the kitchen and found what he wanted. Then Casey went and sat in his bathroom. He held the butcher's knife. It'd be easy. I have nothing to look forward to. No one cares for me. No one loves me, thought Casey. No matter how hard I try, all I know is pain, hurt, misery, and loneliness. Give me one reason I shouldn't kill myself. When he graduated from high school, he found acceptance in the form of a group of underage kids who wanted him to buy them alcohol. His life continued to spiral. About this time, Casey's brother Kyle and Hong Thak, with Student Venture, began asking him to come to their meetings. Casey refused Hong's invitation for months, but he and Hong were both avid video game players, and there they found common ground. Finally, Casey went to a student venture meeting. The speaker that night was a plumber who told a story about being called to a home where the septic system had exploded. He then tied the metaphor to the story of Jesus' waiting through our filth to embrace us. Casey couldn't believe it. Is this real, thought Casey? Is this true? Could Jesus love someone like me, I'm an evil person. Up to this point, Casey didn't really know if there was any other option. He was okay with going to hell. But now he thought, man, if this is true, that Jesus could love an evil person like me, I would give my life to him. It was in that moment that I was a different person. Six years after high school, Casey took the initiative to find the girl who had recrafted his Valentine gift. He shared how God had changed him. Casey apologized for being a crazy person in high school, and she responded, Oh, you don't have to apologize at all. In fact, I should apologize to you because I didn't treat you well at all. I'm so sorry. Casey now works for Jesus in the Compton District, which is the lower-income district around LA, California. His unique background and story of life change attracts individuals rather than detracting from the gospel. My friends, Casey's story of life change shouldn't be unique. The life change in you because of Jesus Christ should be just as dramatic. Now look with me at verses 10 to 12. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. The Bible tells us that Paul and Silas and his team left Thessalonica and came to the city of Berea, and as was their standard practice, went first to the local Jewish synagogue. Unlike the Jews in Thessalonica, the Jews in Berea were more receptive to what Paul and Silas were teaching and advocating for, that Jesus was the Savior of the world. However, instead of simply taking what Paul and Silas said, hook, line, and sinker, meaning believing everything they said at face value, the Bible tells us in verse 11, they looked for themselves in the Scriptures to make sure that what Paul and Silas were saying conformed to the teachings of God's Word. These Bereans were not starstruck by personality or won over by eloquence of words. They fact-checked what everyone was teaching, and this is an important practice for us to do today, to be like the Bereans, to make sure we are fact-checking what we read on social media, listening on the internet, and even what I preach, to make sure it is accurate and consistent with the teachings of Scripture. And not simply taking verses out of context. Someone recently sent me an FB reel asking me to assess the claim of that person on the reel railing against Christianity. In the first five seconds of the video, the person on the reel claimed the church was really started by Alexander the Great. I didn't need to listen anymore because right off the bat, it's factually wrong. Historically, Alexander the Great was killed before Christ was even born. Alexander was the founder of the Greek Empire, while Christ was born in the time of the Roman Empire. This was easy to refute because of historical facts and timelines. Likewise, so many things are easy to refute simply by looking to the Scriptures and using the verses in context to see if it is actually what the Bible teaches. My friends, we have a responsibility to be like a Berean and filter everything we hear, watch, and read through the Scriptures in its proper context. And this is our fourth biblical principle, biblical principle number four. Every truth claim must be checked against the teachings of God's Word. Every truth claim must be checked against the teachings of God's Word. This will save us from falling into heretical beliefs and following wrong paths. Look what happened to Paul and Silas in verses 13 to 15. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed." The Bible tells us the troublemaking, envious Jews from Thessalonica came to Berea and did the same things they did in Thessalonica and stirred up the crowds against Paul and his team. So Paul traveled ahead to Athens, about 195 miles south, southwest of Berea, with Silas and Timothy following soon after to meet Paul in Athens. And we'll continue our study in the book of Acts with Paul in Athens. I'm not sure if you're familiar with a man named William Tyndale, who lived in the 16th century. As I close, I want to share briefly a story. He was born into a well-off family and was educated studying at Oxford University. When he began to study theology at the university, he was shocked that the study of God didn't even involve reading the Bible, and so being God-fearing, he began studying the Bible himself and taught the Bible to others, becoming quite a popular preacher. You see, at that time, the only authorized Bible was the Latin Bible, which most people didn't speak or use. So no one read the Bible, and priests could teach whatever they wanted without anyone fact-checking them. A brilliant linguist, William Tyndale, was keen to translate the New Testament from Greek into English, but never got permission from the church while in England. So in 1524, he moved to Germany. And there, William Tyndale translated the New Testament from the original Greek into English. The new translation was printed in 1526, and copies of the English-translated Bibles were smuggled into England. Catholics in England were alarmed. The Bishop of London banned the new translation. However, the English translation of the Bible continued to circulate. In May of 1535, William Tyndale was arrested and tried for heresy. On October of 1536, Tyndale was martyred. He was strangled and then burned in the market square of Antwerp. The last words of William Tyndale were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And God answered his wish. Two years later, the Breakaway Church of England allowed for the English translation of the Bible so that the people would understand what they were reading. My friends, the Bible is indeed worth dying for because it is God's Word which contains truth to change and save lives. And throughout church history, men and women have died giving people access to the Bible and in their heart language through Bible translation. The Scriptures are important because, number one, the Bible is God's authoritative Word and the only guide for a fulfilled life. Number two, The Bible's central message is God's redemption plan through the Savior Jesus. Number three, the revolutionary message of the Bible should bring about life change. Number four, every truth claim must be checked against the teachings of God's Word. My friends, may we treasure and read the authoritative Word of God daily and live out what it says as our ultimate guide for life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for giving us a guide for our life to measure our life against. Because so often, when we hear the advice of the world, it doesn't make sense. At the end, it is but empty. But You who love us and desire for us to live a blessed life have given us Your Word. And Your Word tells us how we can have eternal life through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Your Word Contains how we can live as Christ followers so that we can bring glory to your name and satisfaction to our soul. Help us, Lord, to live out the truths of Scripture. And we remember the men and women who throughout the centuries have given up their own life so that men and women like us today can have access to your word. Father, may we treasure your word, may we love your word, and live it out daily. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.